Uh, you maybe have seen these stools, and maybe you uh, had heard what we were going to do today, but if not, um, we are having something that we do occasionally. I think the last time we did this was at some point last year, maybe a year and a half ago. We call it Ask Anything, and essentially what we do is rather than there being a prepared sermon, uh, we try to come with hopefully just prepared hearts, and you ask the questions, and we'll try to answer them. And so you can see on the screen there, uh, that is a phone number that you can send questions to. Uh, we would love for you, you don't normally hear this in church, but go ahead and get out your phone and uh, send us a text message if you have a question or questions, and really anything goes. These could be uh, theology-type questions, these could be questions from the Bible, they could be questions about our church, uh, they could be personal questions, uh, whatever you want to ask. Uh, our team uh, is going to try to uh, help us answer as many of those questions as we can. So I want to introduce you to the folks that we have here. Again, I'm Luke Simmons. I'm the lead pastor here. Seth Trout is part of our preaching team and leads our adult uh, ministry. So a number of ministries that all uh, relate to adults are under his leadership. This is Matthew Brazelton. Matthew, uh, you may not know this. Many people think of him as a worship leader because that's kind of how you experience him. But his main job is he's actually our pastor of operations. So all of the stuff related to facilities and finance and administration is all the stuff that he works on. And then Josh Watt down here at the end is also part of our preaching team and he oversees NextGen. So all the different ministries that go from birth through college. And so together we're gonna try to be as helpful as we can. Now here's, uh, I have a couple, I have three things to remember and then one request, all right? And then we'll dive into questions. So I don't see a lot of you texting questions. This is going to be really late, lousy if there are no questions coming in. Or if you just get to breakfast faster, I guess. So that's up to you. Um, so here's the first thing to remember is that 1 Corinthians 15, which we just read, tells us that some things are of first importance. Did you see that in verse 3? For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised, and that he appeared to all these different people. That is of first importance. What, what that means is everything in the Bible is true, and I think you could say everything in the Bible is important because it's breathed out by God, but it's not all equally important according to the Apostle Paul. So the closer it is to the heart of the gospel, the more important it is. And so we're going to answer some questions today that might be related to things that are of first importance, and then we'll try to also answer questions that aren't necessarily of the same level of importance. But I just think it's really key that we understand not everything's equally important. The closer it is to the gospel, the more important it is. Here's a second thing to remember, is that we grow through tension. Who likes tension? <laughs> Some of you sick people do, but, but most people do not like tension. It's uncomfortable, it's difficult, and yet, here's what I know, is you would, if you were to look back in your life, the ways you've grown emotionally, the ways you've grown spiritually, the ways you've grown relationally have almost always come through tension. And so there might be some moments today where you feel some tension, and that's actually an okay thing. We want you to lean into it and invite the Lord into that because we think that's how the Lord will help us grow. So we grow through tension. Here's the third thing, is try to consider our questions the beginning of the conversation, not the end. Okay, so if there's a question that you ask and you're not thrilled with how that question got answered, let what we said begin the conversation, don't let it end it. And if you wanna continue to talk more afterward, we'll all be up in the front left of the room and we'd love to help answer and push into those questions further. All right, does that make sense? You with me? All right, so those are three reminders. Here's one request. Please give us grace. We don't know what's coming. 
Uh, we've tried to prepare our hearts as well as we can. We're going to try to answer questions with as much scripture and as much wisdom as we can. But give us grace. We're, we're on the fly here. So that's kind of what makes this fun. All right? So I'm going to ask Josh if you would pray for us, sure. and then we'll dive in. Let's pray together. You gotta, if you were here and on this stage, you'd have every answer. God, more than that, you'd have a, a father's heart, a savior's passion. God, the sage's wisdom. You'd have it all, and you'd know every person in this room and the motivation behind every question, God. So we don't uh, come to this moment thinking that any human can fill your role or step into the spot that is alone for you. You are God, we are not, and yet there are questions that we need answers to, questions that you might not give us answers to, questions that are really uh, messing with us in certain ways, questions that come from pain, questions that come from a desire to know you more, God. So questions are good. Uh, people who ask questions are good. Tension is good, God. So help us to just uh, be faithful in this moment. Help uh, us up here to be helpful with our answers. And God, more than that, be a reflection of you. God, more than just uh, your mind, but your heart, God, and your care. So thank you for your care for this church over this past year. God, this is a sweet just time to reflect and to be here as a church looking back on a great year, God. We love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Everyone said amen. Amen. All right. So the first question is, what's the hardest thing about being in full-time ministry? What's the biggest blessing? Wow. Hmm. That's a good question. You want me to kick it off? <laughs> sure. Um, I think the hardest thing is just there are moments you, you really strive to, to make this not the case, but there are moments where you just feel like a giant hypocrite, um, where you're, you know, the, the direction of your life is, is following Jesus, but there are times where you fall or you take a detour, and um, I think that's the hardest thing. So I'm still figuring out how to parent and how to lead and how to do all the things that the Lord's called me to, and I, I don't do it perfectly. So, that sucks. <laughs> What's the biggest blessing? Wow. Gosh, there's a lot of blessings. Um, I mean, it's, it's really cool. I know not everyone has this experience, but it's really neat to be able to do something that I passionately love and work with people that I love. Um, got a great team. Um, I mean, it's just, a, I look forward to going into work every day. It's a get to use my gifts and talents. I, one of the unique things about how we tend to try to structure roles here at the church is we really try to put people in roles that fit their gifting, um, which is just a huge blessing. So super grateful for that. One thing I'll just add to that, that just kind of on behalf of all of our pastors is uh, one of the best gifts you can give us is to just treat us as normal people and to treat our families like normal people. Um, there's just an inherent kind of pressure that's part of leadership and that's okay but it also when you elevate us you might think that honors us it actually makes things harder on us and our families because we're uh, sinners saved by grace trying to follow Jesus and so the degree that you can just kind of treat us like normal people that actually really is a huge blessing and I think one of the great joys of this church is that many of you do that and um, that makes it really a fun place. My, my family loves being here, and not every person in the ministry can say that, yeah. so that's really great. All right, next question. Other than praying, how can I bring Jesus into someone's life when they reject my invitations to church and don't want to talk about faith? Hmm. That's a good question. Do you guys want to 
take that? Yeah, I think one of the things that I grew up being told to pray, which is not a bad thing, is pray for opportunities to share faith. I think that's not a bad prayer. I think a better prayer is praying for opportunities to love people sacrificially. And I think that if you're in a situation where you love someone and they don't want to talk about faith, um, I would pray for opportunities to love them sacrificially and hope that over time um, they begin to see the love of Christ through you. Mm. Uh, I, I do think that sharing Christ's death and resurrection is a part of our, our mission, but I think the, the central part of our mission is just to love people well. And so it can be pretty dehumanizing when you only want to talk about faith with non-Christians. Like, I can't talk to anything about you. I can't talk to you anything besides Jesus. It's actually, it narrows them and it dehumanizes them. But if you just love them like people without necessarily having to gospelize every encounter, it's a way of humanizing them and loving them. And I think it's a more holistic view of what it means to be God's people in the world. So all the kids workers have shirts on. There's a few of you that say No Love Center. Uh, so that's kind of our motto in Next Gen Ministry, know, love, center, get to know each person, love them, and then center them. I think Christians too often kind of have this uh, s- split view of Christianity, like I'm doing just normal secular things, and then there's moments where I can pounce and bring the gospel in. The reality is you getting to know people is mimicking Jesus, is reflecting the heart of the Father. So that's kind of the order that's always helped me think through just any relationship, my kid, who's not yet a Christian yet, my wife, who is a Christian, no, am I really understanding her in this moment, am I loving her, and by the Spirit's prompting in my life, am I centering her on the gospel of Jesus, so try not to have a, there's worldly talk, and then there's gospelly talk, it's you're knowing, you're loving, and you're centering each person God brings in your life, so that's great. All right, next question. Is redemption involved somehow in helping migrants or asylum seekers at the border? I'll take this one, and the answer is uh, yes, Uh, not institutionally, like there's no organized redemption-wide ministry for this, but a number of people in redemption have started to get involved, and some of the organizations that we're connected to have sought our involvement, and there's actually a really cool opportunity right now because um, ICE, which is the the government, uh, you know, immigration customs enforcement that has to do all of the border security type stuff, Um, What they've actually asked is for Christians and churches to help with this. So what happens is people come to the border, they claim asylum, they have to go through some sort of, you know, initial vetting process before then they get sent to go live with family, uh, typically who's in another part of the country until all of the, you know, claims and legal stuff gets processed. And so what ICE is asking is for churches to basically provide families with the opportunity to stay with us for 24 to 48 hours, have a place to take a shower, get a meal, uh, get cleaned up, and just be loved for a few days until they get on the bus. And so a number of us have had the opportunity to do this, and it's incredibly, it's a beautiful picture of just an opportunity to love. And um, I hope that a bunch of you would get involved with it if you're interested, because I mean, frankly, it's not often that the government comes to you and says, hey, church, will you do something here? Will you help? We, we're overwhelmed. We don't know what to do. You might be interested. And the answer is yes, we're very interested in that. It's a way to serve the Lord and you know, serve your country as you do it. So if you're interested in that, just email me or contact me, and I can help connect you with the, the folks that are organizing all that stuff. So, Great. Next question. What is redemption's stance on the progressive churches in the valley accepting and agreeing with the LGBTQ lifestyle? That's a good question. Um, well, you could take that. I feel like 
He just volunteered me. Yeah. I, well, Seth and I, you, you and I have talked a lot about this. Um, the short answer would be redemption doesn't have a stance. There's no redemption stance where we're speaking on behalf of all nine redemption congregations. Um, Specifically against those churches. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not we're a not, stance on marriage. We have a stance on what we think the Bible teaches yes. about sexuality, which is that marriage is created as a gift of God. It's between one man and one woman, and that that's the only appropriate place for sex to happen. So we have absolute you know, clarity about that. We have a stance there. But a stance in terms of how a church should relate to other churches who take different views, that's just... We don't have a position paper, but we have some opinions and some views. So <laughs> why don't you... I thought Matthew's going to answer this. <laughs> Uh, so here's, there's two texts that come to mind when speaking about this. Um, and so I want to affirm a couple things on the front end. One, I think that a lot of what churches like this are doing is they're trying to correct um, something that's been actually sinful in the church. Uh, I think that homophobia is sinful and the church should repent of it. I think that otherizing um, folks in the LGBTQ community is sinful and that the church has done that. I think that making LGBTQ people or their lifestyle or their choices out to be worse types of sin than other types of sin is sinful. And I think that the church, broadly speaking, has done that. And so I want to affirm part of the flinch in those churches to correct the way that the church has mistreated uh, same-sex attracted LGBTQ people. And so I want to affirm that. At the same time, I, uh, Jesus says about false teachers that it's better for them to tie rocks around their neck and jump into the sea than to lead his children into sin. Likewise, in the book of Revelation, uh, the Spirit is judging the churches, and one of the churches is blessing sexual immorality and calling it normal, and their candlestick is going out, and God's in judgment against them. It's not invalidating everything that church is doing, but it is... Um, warning people who are think that we need to bless sin in order to love sinners. And so um, a lot of the rhetoric that gets tossed around is, well, the Bible's hard to interpret, and the fact is, is that it's not. Uh, there's just incentive to misinterpret it. So I, that's kind of what I mean when I say I want to empathize with the flinch to we need to love LGBTQ people well, and the church hasn't historically done that at the same time. I don't think giving people a license to do whatever feels right in your heart, I think that's unbiblical. I think it misunderstands a biblical theology of desire. I think it misunderstands a biblical theology of the self and of the flesh. And I think that often what Jesus did was he loved people and corrected them. He didn't just love them and um, go on doing what you think is right. So I don't know if that answers question. I, I want to say one more thing on that is uh, the other thing that folks that will, you know, be kind of gay and affirming congregations, they'll say, hey, this is just an issue to agree to disagree on. They'll say is this is a secondary thing. This is a, you know, this isn't of first importance. I actually think it is because what we said earlier was the closer it is to the heart of the gospel, the more important it is. And in the gospel, what you have in Ephesians 5 is a description of the gospel being Jesus as the faithful groom and the church as a complementary bride. And so when you uh, adopt an LGBTQ lifestyle, what you're saying is that the the creation order and the gospel order is okay being turned on its head. And so I don't think it's the 
I don't think it's the most important thing, but it's also not just, well, Christians agree to disagree and it's no big deal. It, it, actually, it actually is a big deal. Yeah, I was just going to say, in terms of like partnering, we do partner with um, other faith, faith traditions in areas where we agree. So it's, it's not like we would say they're anathema and we'd never speak with them, but we would certainly be clear that we don't agree with that. All right, next question. How do we as a church and individuals be the best neighbor to our Mormon friends? Brazo, why don't you take that? Because I know you have a good number of LDS friends. Yeah, and neighbors. Um, yeah, I, I think that for a long time I grew up being, um, I tend to be afraid of what I don't understand. Uh, and so I didn't, I didn't understand Mormonism. And so I... I was afraid of it, and the way my fear manifested itself was more toward kind of anger. Um, people would come to my home, and I'd be rude, or I'd try to argue with them. Um, and we took a new approach when we moved to Queen Creek, because we realized almost our entire block was uh, LDS. So maybe, maybe starting a battle at the, first, first out, at the outset isn't a good idea. Um, and we, we had some more missionaries knock on our door, and we welcomed them in, and we said, you know what? Um, I'm a pastor at a Christian church, and I'd love to hear your story. Um, I don't probably agree with your story, but I'd love to hear it, and I'd love to share mine if you're open to that. And they loved that. And so they came over for the next eight weeks. We scheduled a time when they'd come in. My, uh, my wife would, would bake cookies or some sort of hospitality, try to be hospitable, because they're away from home. They miss their family. Um, and I just got, we just got to know them, got to know them as people, got to understand what made them tick and um, asked them a lot of questions about their faith and um, really grew to love these two girls that um, have now since kind of gone back and they're doing their thing. Um, but in the process, we were able to pray with them and they were able to hear how we prayed to God and we were able to hear how they prayed. We were able to talk about our differences um, civilly. And we were able to kind of come to kind of this agreeing to disagree with maybe a little bit of a, hey, if, if you get to the, a point in this journey that you feel like it's, not, it's no longer carrying you to the place that you think you want to go, perhaps there's an alternate way. Maybe, there, maybe this story doesn't hold the weight that, that you believe it does. So um, it, there was no dramatic transformation or anything like that, but I think the, the moral of the probably too long story, um, is just love people. Be honest about what you believe. Treat them with respect. Understand that the people who knock on your doors, your neighbors, most likely are not the like Mormon kingpins who are designing the system <laughs> that we feel like is really oppressive. And honestly, it feels like a demonic stronghold in many ways because it's super hard to get out of. Uh, but but those, aren't, those people aren't <laughs> responsible for that. Um, they're the people we should have compassion on, we should be praying for, we should be loving and welcoming in. And then be honest about your failures. That's something that Mormonism does not provide a great context for. There's not, as much as they talk about grace, grace is a clunky thing for them. So if you can say, I'm a, I'm a mom with three kids and I'm, I'm just like, I'm at the end of my rope right now to your Mormon neighbor, that's a new concept to them, to be able to be that honest and vulnerable. Um, and that just kind of models this, this grace that we talk about in Christ as well. So that's great. All right, next question. Why are all the pastors white men? When will we see a pastor of color? When will we see a female pastor? Great question. Yeah, those are three good questions. Um, 
So why are all the pastors white men um, is a good question. It's kind of, I guess it's mostly true. Uh, we do have uh, two guys who are at least partially Hispanic. Hispanic. The Reese brothers. Yeah. Though it's Ruiz, but they say it Reese. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if they're trying to... <laughs> I don't know what that is. It's just easier to say. Um, so that's not by any kind of intention other than uh, probably just the reality that most of the folks that I've known and uh, been around have largely been white men. So um, that's more of a fact than a, something that's to be esteemed. When will we see a pastor of color? Um, I don't know. I hope, I hope at some point in the not too distant future. Um, I wouldn't want to uh, hire a person of color just to kind of do that. I think that that's patronizing and actually um, unhelpful. Um, but it's definitely um, something that we, as we think about our staff and our uh, leadership continuing to grow, it's something that we are, you know, it's, it's a factor that we think is important because as our church is becoming more diverse and as we want our church to be more diverse, I think it is valuable that leadership represents that. And then when will we see a female pastor? Um, the short answer to that is never, um, because we do believe as a church that um, all the opportunities for leadership and service in the church are available to both men and women, with the singular exception of pastor-elder. Uh, we think that in the scriptures, 1 Timothy 2 is a place that talks about that. I'm not the only one, but is one uh, that indicates that that is an office in the church uh, that should be um, only fulfilled by men. Um, we have lots and actually a growing number of female staff and of female, uh, females in significant leadership roles, um, but not in that role of, or office of elder. So, Good answer. Great. How do you reconcile the God of grace and love with the multiple Old Testament biblical instructions given to the Israelites to kill every living thing in a place, including men, women, and children. That sounds like a question for Seth. <laughs> <laughs> this was probably on your like final exam or something in seminary. I don't know. It was not. So, oh. <laughs> so a lot of it is uh, we need to recognize the way that the ancient Near Eastern context worked and the way that um, the belief in tribal deities was the normal um, cultural um, thinking. <laughs> Just buckle up, y'all. <laughs> this is going to be good. All right, keep going. Sorry. No, I'm, I'm excited. You got tribal deities. Here we go. I love it. So, so the default mode of thinking in the ancient Near Eastern context, which is Israel's neighbors, was that there was tribal deities where this nation or city had a god, this nation or city had a god, this nation had a god. And so they would have interpreted these stories of this city conquering that entire city as that god uh, being more significant than that God. So they wouldn't have seen it as Israelites versus Canaanites. They would have seen it as Yahweh versus Baal. And so a lot of what's going on is uh, even in the book of Exodus when God sends the plagues on the Egyptians and he says, so that the nations will hear um, of what I've done here. The nations will hear of my name and hear of my redemption. And you see that when, so God then um, kind of obliterates Egypt and setting his people free. And you're like, why did he have to do that? Did that have to happen? And then they go wandering off into the desert and they meet these people who said, we heard of what your God did. Um, and they repent and believe in the true God of Israel. And so these stories in which 
um, Israel is decimating these other nation states is primarily about demonstrating that the, the city or the tribal deity myth or account of the universe is false and that Yahweh is the one true God over all things and he's not going to share his power with people. And so people would hear of his story and people would hear about the way that he dominated Baal and it would kind of create this ripple effect in the ancient Near East. People would hear about Yahweh's name and repent and believe in the true God of Israel. And so it's actually an evangelistic technique where Yahweh is demonstrating himself as superior to the tribal deities of these other nations. So that's like the biggest kind of cultural block we have is we hear just people killing people, but actually in the ancient Near Eastern context, it was about gods defeating gods, not people fighting people. Um, and the other piece to that is just this reality of, like, I don't like that answer fully, I'm be honest, <laughs> you know? I mean, that's the answer, that's the, that's the, the scholastic answer. Um, but I hear that and I go, oh, that sounds fine for them in their culture, but I still doesn't make sense to me. And so then I kind of look to the cross of Christ and say, well, how is it fair for Jesus to be murdered and brutalized innocently? And I see how God used that crucifixion, the most evil thing in all history, to actually be a good thing. And so my theology of suffering and pain is influenced by the cross and the resurrection, that if God worked good in the middle of the murder of Jesus, then he can work good in the middle of other situations that I don't understand and I don't see it. And so my belief in resurrection in my belief in what happened to God in the flesh is being brutalized by the hands of the powers at bay, kind of helped me say, even though I don't get these stories, even though I don't get or understand or even like what happened, um, there's a gap there that I can fill in going, God is bigger than my understanding. God is better than whatever my vision of him even is. And so even though I'm not totally satisfied with that answer, my belief in God's goodness and his resurrection kind of is what keeps my actual soul at bay from losing my faith in hearing these kind of what seem like brutal Old Testament stories. Yeah, I'd, I'd add things like um, human rights that we feel like are so obvious. That wasn't a thing back then. Like they, it was very early in the story. People didn't know about God. They didn't know. They did, they hadn't heard, experienced, and been changed by the message of Jesus. God was laying the, the groundwork literally like creating the, the people that would eventually lead us to Jesus. And um, it required some, some harsh things just to get the soil ready so that the gospel could be planted and so that the church could grow. Um, and sadly, there, these, there were despicable people doing despicable things for hundreds of years. The Bible even talks about the, the patience of God in waiting for people to see um, the reality of what they were doing and repent, which, and that was, that was available to them. The creation itself declared uh, the truth of God and they rejected it. And so sadly, I think God in his eventual mercy executed justice in a particular moment to prepare um, the ground for great mercy um, that will reap benefits and continue to, to bless the entire cosmos for, for all of eternity. So it's a, it's a sad trade-off that sin forced God's hand to move in, uh, in harsh ways at different points in history. If you want a helpful book on this, um, one of our pastors at Redemption Tempe is named Joshua Butler, and he wrote a book called Skeletons in God's Closet about hell and holy war and how those are actually things that end up showing some of the beauty of God. And so again, that's Skeletons in God's Closet, if you want to get that on Amazon or anywhere books are sold. All right. Uh, next question. 
Is membership required at redemption? Is there scripture that encourages this requirement? Uh, I'll take that. Uh, membership uh, is not required to be here. <laughs> uh, no one, I don't think, did any of you flash your membership card at the door as you came in? No. Um, but uh, we do require leaders to go through membership, and that's because we want leaders to be people who are sure are on board with where we are theologically, uh, what's important to us in terms of our philosophy and approach to ministry, and who we have the opportunity to just be in closer relationship and accountability with. So membership's required for leaders, and it's encouraged for everyone else. Um, as it, Think about the scripture. Um, there's no one Bible verse that says, thou shalt be a member of a local church. Um, but it's also inconceivable, I think, to the authors of Scripture that people would be Christians and not be a committed part of a local church. Like, they, that wasn't a category they had. Um, and if you just think contextually, you know, a church in Ephesus gets started, there's one church. There aren't a bunch of churches, and I like this one, but I don't like that one, and I used to go to that one. Like, that wasn't that wasn't how it worked. And so um, there's a lot in the scriptures that talk about belonging to one another and committing to one another. Um, our membership packet has a number of scriptures that describe that whole process um, that I can't remember off the top of my head. But um, so I think it's when you look at the thrust of scripture, it's biblically, uh, it makes sense. Um, but membership also to some degree is something that we do because we think in a culture that's afraid of commitment but really needs it that it actually has some value. So, Can I add one thing? Sure. So Jesus tells a story about building a house. One person built it on the sand, another person built it on the rock. The storms came down the road, which they weren't expecting, and one house fell. Uh, the more I'm in church ministry, covenantal membership with a local church is a way to build your house mm -hmm. on the solid rock. Because mm -hmm. I've seen people go through the ringer who are covenant members, and they come out somehow stronger. And I've seen people go through the ringer who never felt like committing to a local church is scriptural or whatever, fill in the blank, and the house fell. And there's just a reality to, like Luke said, there's not a scripture you can point to. It's the thrust of the story. As Jesus left, he ascended, he put people in charge. Local churches sprung up and people became covenantal members or whatever language they used of local congregations, and they built their house on the rock, not on the sand of human, Western, American, consumeristic, I'm going to leave whenever I feel like it, nonsense. So pastorally, my heart says, is it a requirement? I don't, we can go, you can buy me coffee and we can argue the Bible. I can tell you, you're not building your house on the rock if you don't take this serious. So it's great. All right, next question. How does one who served in the military deal with thou shalt not kill, or yeah, thou shall not kill when that was part of the job? That's a good question. So one thing about this verse, so that's the King James, thou shalt not kill. The ESV translates that verse, thou shalt not murder. And the word um, is rashak in Hebrew, and it means murder, not kill. So all murder is killing, but not all killing is murder. Uh, murder um, doesn't include self-defense or military killing. I do think that whether you're a police officer or in the military, you can murder. Not all killing is murder. And so there can be war crimes. There can be um, police officers who need to be tried for murder, not um, in, in that example. So I think that uh, the trauma that comes from killing, whether it's justified or not, is worth processing through with a therapist in pretty serious ways. And I know that the military um, can often, that can be 
an area of stigma, like you're weak if you go to therapy or you're weak if you try and process through your PTSD. I think that's evil, um, or that message is evil. I do think that going to therapy and processing through, whether it was a, like whether you murdered someone or you killed someone, I think it's worth revisiting those memories and trying to process through them in a way that's not triggering for you. Um, so th that's one thing I, would, I do think there's a distinction between murder and killing in terms of biblical ethics, but I think regardless of the fact, it's probably something that's really healthy to talk through with someone who's going to um, see you and love you and help you function as a whole person. All right, next question. As we enter the season of seeking to be the best friend our community has, how will our church budget priorities reflect this focus? So we Go have to have budget question. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> So, church budget expert. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I mean, we, we were just talking about this not too long ago. Um, we, we've all agreed we need to make progress in this area, um, and we're excited to see that kind of move in this direction. So, we're looking at right now uh, possibly hiring at least part-time initially uh, someone to help us kind of figure this out. So that would be a budget response. Um, we also have funds available to, to do various things as they come up. Um, and we plan to kind of continue to allocate stuff as more opportunities come up. It, it's hard. You have to balance um, opportunity with the ability to lead the opportunity well. So a lot of you over the years have come to me with ideas, but we didn't have any like leadership margin to actually steward it well. And so we're, the thing you can really pray for us for is, is how we develop that leadership margin to steward it well um, in our congregation and outside in our community. So, The other thing that I would say is our entire budget is going toward being the best friend our community has yeah. in that our entire budget is devoted to helping make disciples who give honor and glory to God in all of life. And so we don't view it as like, well, here's the stuff we do and then the stuff that will help us be the best friend our community has. It's all part of, uh, because all of us are sent on the mission of God to all the different places that he's sending you. Um, but in terms of some of the community uh, partnerships and things like that, we think some additional staffing and resources will be helpful for that. So let's go to the next one. Many of us are struggling with addiction or behaviors that are embarrassing. Fear of judgment can hold us back from asking for help. How can one feel comfort in asking leadership for help? And do we have any program in place for that? So, Josh, should we take this? Oh, yeah. Um, hopefully our culture is a safe culture um, to where you, not just leadership, but other people in your RC, your small group, your ministry you're serving alongside, the person you sit next to every Sunday. Uh, eventually, you have multiple people who can be a safe place for you to go to. Part of what makes... Christianity unique, Matthew just talked about the LDS neighbors, is that concept of grace, of we all need grace. Mm. None of us came to Jesus because we have to figure out. We crawled to Jesus because we were struggling and failing miserably. So hopefully there's just a tangible grace thing here in our culture that uh, that question doesn't prove to be true. Like you can go to people and have gracious answers. Uh, as far as programs, I'll still assess a little bit. We have uh, Exodus groups, which is, uh, I don't want to mess it up. You, I'll, I'll go for it. Uh, don't <laughs> it's essentially, it's a safe place to take the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, of first importance, and apply it to those areas of life that you're embarrassed about. 
that you have guilt and shame and remorse. Sin done to you, sin you've done to others, and kind of merge those things and figure out, okay, does the gospel actually, is it weighty enough to, to intermingle with the stuff that really is messing with me? And the answer is yes, and Exodus Groups is the program to kind of help men and women uh, work through those bigger things. And the, the secondary blessing of Exodus is we have people who go through Exodus and they leave with this gospel fluency that they didn't have before. It's no longer pat Jesus answers. It's rich, robust gospel answers to even the darkest moments of life. And we are starting to have more and more people with that sort of fluency. So uh, those would be my two. I don't know if you had anything. Yeah, so even some of the neuroscience that's coming out on addictive behaviors is how it's lack of connection that um, fosters the ability for addiction to go on. And so I think that it takes a lot of courage and a lot of faith to share your story and share your struggle with people, and that is a risky thing. But I think that that step of faith is actually the first step in the healing process, is risking the vulnerability and allowing people to see you and love you in that and kind of beginning to foster that connection with safe people. Um, Because I think the more connected we are in web to meaningful relationships where we're not hiding, the more likely we are to overcome addiction, whether you're in different... um, Um, 12-step programs or whether it is whatever the different program you're formally in, I think being connected to a web of people in the church who see you and love you regardless of where you're at is a irreducibly um, necessary part to the healing process. And that does take a lot of courage and takes a lot of faith to take that first step. And so I just want to encourage you to do that. We can maybe do uh, one or two more. If Jesus really does passionately love us and care about the small things in our lives, why does he seem so quiet or removed day to day and life often feels so lonely? Um, Yeah. Uh, I just want to say I'm, whoever asked this question, I'm sorry. And I relate to that. I mean, I think that there are times when it just does seem like, God, where are you? Do any of you want to? Yeah, I mean, I definitely felt that, and um, I felt the opposite of that also. And I'd say, generally speaking, not 100%, but generally speaking, um, I experience intimacy with God when I pursue him relationally. Um, and that's something that's kind of a learned, that's a learned practice, just, just like you learn how to connect with any person in your life. I don't know about you, but it took me a while to figure my wife out figure out what, what she loved, what she didn't, how to understand her, what was she thinking. Um, and it's the same thing with the Lord. And I, I've personally experienced, if, if my life is, is constantly bombarded with media and messages um, and I don't have space to quiet my heart and mind, it's really hard to feel close to Jesus. Because he's, he's speaking in very few of the things that I'm drawn to naturally. I mean, he, he can speak through anything, but um, it's not his voice often that's the loudest voice in the room. So uh, making time intentionally to just sit and listen, to sit with the scriptures and pray through some of the prayers that um, men have written in the past that are written down for us in scripture that deal with these very issues and then hear the Lord respond over time um, is really important. It's like, the, it's like the opposite of what we want in the West. Like there's no microwave button on this. It's relational work, but it's, it's really good, and it's where life is found. So talk about, because I know a lot of people who maybe have spiritual practices, but you kept using a word relational. Yeah. So the difference between spiritual practices, Bible reading, prayer, da-da-da, that can be done really in a not very relational way yeah. versus 
doing it in a relational way? What would be the difference there? Yeah, hopefully if you go on a date with your spouse, you don't just exchange information, like the details of the week. Here's what I did on Monday, and here's what I did on Tuesday. Uh, hopefully you, like, just sit together for a while or express your heart. Here's how I'm feeling. Here's what I'm really looking forward to. Here's what really makes me nervous. Um, Hopefully you stop and listen. You're not just always thinking about the next thing you're going to say, but you get a chance, you like, you stop and listen. And so when I try to spend time with the Lord, a big part of it is, Lord, speak to me. Like, and then I create silence to, to actually hear what he might have to say. Um, so I think, I think it's that. We, we put a big emphasis on our, on our minds, maybe. Um, that feels safer. But... Uh, it's, the Bible's a story that welcomes you into its drama. And, and stories, it's not, it's not a list of facts that God gave us to, to fill our minds with, but it's a story that he, he, he called us into and immersed us with. So we want to do that. Great. Let's do one more. Do you have any wild dreams or aspirations on what being a best friend to Queen Creek could look like? So I do, but... <laughs> To be honest, that question got asked at the last service, and we thought it would be a good one to end on at every service, and I already answered it at the first service. And we're going to post videos to all three of these services to, so you can see all the different questions. So I'll let one of you guys answer this question. What wild dreams or aspirations might you have about being a best friend to Queen Creek? Yeah, I'll go. Um, so in terms of our youth, there's a book by Scott McKnight about the church, um, and he has a quote in there that's just always stuck with me. He says, everything I learned about the Christian life, I learned from the local church. And he just kind of keeps, and he says, let me just, everything I know about life, I learned in the local church. And the image kind of the Lord gave me is the image of ruts. So we as a next gen, especially with our younger people, we're creating ruts in their head and in their heart and in their soul on what life should be like. And we can't control kind of if they stay in those ruts or not, but we can control the fact that we are creating good ruts. This is the path towards life and joy and fullness is this. So my, if I could have a dream come true, it would be there would be thousands of young people who have nothing but sweet memories from this place, which is not the case right now. Homes are busted. Schools are fearful. Anxiety. There's just not sweet, quiet moments and places where there's space for young people to just be joyful and kind of a little naively youthful in a way. So if we became a church where all over this place and people who moved away and they came here, it would just be like me going home to grandma's with her RC cola for me <laughs> and her sour cream and onion dip <laughs> and Phoenix Suns and Dan Marley on TV. It's nothing but good memories for me. And that's my prayer for this place is it would be RC Cola and Onion Dip and Phoenix Suns <laughs> sweetness for young people who are going to swerve and mm -hmm. do dumb stuff, but mm -hmm. they're going to get back to the roots because of the memories created here. So that's great. That'd be mine. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, um, your ways are higher than our ways. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And God, so many of our questions come... Um, not just from the information we don't know, but because of the pain we feel and the sense that we have that, uh, that you're indifferent to it. And so God, I pray that um, as we leave this place and as we go into this next year, 
that we would experience that you are for us, that you're powerful and you're good, that we'd see your heart. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.